Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Guys, we had Sagar from Breaking Points podcast on the episode today. We talk about why mainstream media sucks and how to fix it. Not just a problem, but a solution. The end of that problem. A few takeaways for you today. Number one, we talk about mainstream media, why it's broken, and the prescription of how to fix it. Number two, we talk about advice Sagar has for crypto media. How do we make sure we don't become them? You know who I mean by them. <laughs> Number three, we talk politics because we had to. Sagar's into politics. And we asked him about the candidates, his guests on the likely candidate for the 2024 US election. And is all of this going to lead to civil war? That's a question on our minds. Number four, what does Sagar think of the whole FTX thing? He lost money in BlockFi, it turns out. He watched the SBF plus four he's debate. He's been in crypto since Balaji introduced him to crypto in 2017. But after this, has he written it all off? That was a question for him today. And it was good to get Sagar's perspective, who is a talented, I think, content creator outside of crypto, but shares some of our core values, David. What are your thoughts going into this episode? Yeah, after just talking to Sagar, I'm just so proud of him, man. Yeah. He and Crystal went up against like teeth and nails, which is mainstream media. He went up against the system, the composed network of incentives that keeps the elites in power, keeps the mainstream media companies in power, keeps the Democrats and the Republicans in power. And him and Crystal just said, F it. You guys are just a bunch of acting charades and we need real media, a new, real, honest, authentic media institution out there. And so they made breakpoints. And I couldn't be more proud of Sagar and Crystal, even though I don't, I just talked to Sagar for an hour and a half. I haven't talked to Crystal at all. She's great. But too. just like, we need people like that in the world to make sure that we don't go backwards as a society. So that's really just the impression I've been left with after this episode. Yeah, it's definitely a kindred spirit. Mm -hmm. And the work they're doing over there is pretty cool. And we felt some of the shared values and kinship with Bankless. I think it's also good to get sort of somebody on the outside of the crypto bubble, their perspective on this whole crazy space. So there's a lot of that conversation too. Of course, premium subscribers, make sure you stick around because David and I are about to have an epic debrief conversation about what we really think about Saga. <laughs> it's all good things, I think. I really enjoyed him, David. But if you want to tune in to get our raw, unfiltered thoughts, make sure you click the link in the show notes if you're a premium subscriber. If you're not, consider becoming a premium subscriber. You get all of this content and a slew of other features when you upgrade, including the private premium RSS feed. With no ads. Yeah, no ads. All right, speaking of which, we will go right to our conversation with Sagar. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need Layer 2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest, cheapest, and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about high fees or long wait times. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic oracle to securely transfer tokens between Layer 2s and Ethereum. Across's critical ecosystem infrastructure and Across V2 has just launched. Their new version focuses on higher capital efficiency, layer two to layer two transfers, and a brand new chain with Polygon, all while prioritizing high security and low fees. You can be a part of Across's story by joining their Discord and using Across for all of your layer two transferring needs. So go to across.to to quickly and securely bridge your assets between Ethereum, Optimism, Polygon, Arbitrum, or Boba networks. 
In all of my years in crypto, I have never been hacked, scammed, or lost money to a thief. And a lot of that credit goes to my Ledger hardware wallet. The Ledger Nano X and the Ledger Nano S Plus hardware wallets allow users like you and me to secure and manage all of our crypto assets and our NFTs, all with the security of storing users' private keys offline and out of reach from hackers. The Ledger Nano X is the perfect hardware wallet for managing your crypto and NFTs on the go because it connects to your phone with Bluetooth and has a nice big screen for easy transaction readings. Ledger has also upgraded the iconic Ledger Nano S and made the new Ledger Nano S device more DeFi and NFT friendly, making it the perfect hardware wallet for beginners. Ledger has truly maximized for both ease of use and security. So discover which Ledger device is best suited for your journey by going and visiting shop.ledger.com. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to Sagar and Jetty. He's the co-host of a fantastic podcast I go to for all things politics. It's called Breaking Points. Crystal Ball is his co-host. This is kind of an anti-establishment political news sort of podcast. I think there's some kindred spirit with uh, what we're doing over here at Bankless. They launched in June 2001. Breaking Points right now has 850,000 subscribers. Let's just round that up to a million subscribers, <laughs> which is pretty hard to do, I must say. Sagar, welcome to Bankless. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Hey, we're excited to talk to you because there's a number of things we want to pick your brain about. But like one thing that I think you have in common with probably people in crypto is you guys see that some of the machines that run our society, some of the institutions, let's call them, are, are kind of broken right now. And so we want to talk about a few of those. We want to talk about media, that institution. We want to talk about politics. We want to talk about the economy. But before we get there, David and I are about to get on a, uh, doing an interview with a politician, Senator Pat Toomey. is coming on the podcast. He's got like 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, he's rescheduled a couple of times, Classic. but yeah. we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. We don't, talk to many politicians but i know you're in that world and you do what like what's your advice what should we talk about yeah so number one don't let the handlers handle anything they're going to try and say he's late they're going to try and say he's got a hard cutoff let the senator go when the senator needs to go okay that's number one so they always give you a short and a fake time frame and they always reschedule and they always want to try and keep you off your <laughs> okay number two these people do this for a living they're filibusters so and they have scripts they're perfect they know how to launch exactly they're better than online. podcasters at this oh they're good at this they are the kings of saying nothing with as much time <laughs> as possible the way that you get this job is by being an arch narcissist and also being boring and so this is their turf so i would really just try throw them off their game ask them something interesting try to get to the value almost as soon as possible I find it useful to let them get their script out within about five minutes and then start to dive in mm. a little bit because they feel like they don't have to revert back to. But it's a real dance. It's a real dance. Oh, so he's going to come in with something to say then or her thing. He's got an agenda, right? 
Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, they're not going to agree to do an interview with you unless they have something that they right. want to. And I, we don't have to get into the circumstance. I'm assuming it's like some legislation. He's like the only crypto-friendly senator on the banking committee. Yeah. Everyone else hates crypto. Right. And, you know, this is like, you know, the FTX aftermath. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys talked about it a little bit. This is after that. So I don't know what, I mean, I think we're going to talk to him as if, you know, he is one of the few crypto-friendly senators who's come out and been like, crypto is great and here's why. So right. we want to talk about that. But he might have some other ideas of why he's coming on. Yeah, I would just try to drill down into him. Like, what, like, why are you, you know, a fun question would be, why are you here? <laughs> Why'd you come what on you today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are just you making here? making it yeah. super <laughs> meta. I'm always a fan of making it meta because yeah. it makes people yeah. step back on their heels. Exactly. Sagar, is there any politician that doesn't fit that mold or are they all universally like this? I think once you get elected, so before they get elected, some of them can be fun. Um, so, and I know some people before they get elected and they'll talk a little bit more off the cuff, but right. you know, there's so many constituencies and internal. So, you know, what we were talking, you were say, referencing systems, institutions, like the risk is so high. If you say the wrong thing, you will just get killed here in Washington, mm. even if you say the truth. So it can cause you some serious problems. I would just, in general, like that's why I really despise and, and generally don't talk to a lot of politicians whenever they're asking to come on. Uh, you know, people will come on, but like, I want to talk about this one thing. I'm like, yeah, but you don't get to decide. And in general, the way that it works is that cable news is very accommodating because they have very short periods of time yeah. where you can come on and hawk your stupid bill or talk, get the attention that you deserve. The system is really not designed to get into anything nitty gritty. And unfortunately, like when you really talk to these people, you're like, you don't know anything. Like a long form <laughs> podcast, yeah. I think would be way more yeah. interesting. Yeah. Is it the time constraint that makes that meta reality? I think that they love the time constraint. Mm -hmm. The time constraint works on both ends, right? So cable by definition is short bursts in between advertising that's their true market they need to serve that they just their job is to fill time in between ad breaks politicians job is to say something as inoffensive as possible while also advancing x y or z agenda so it's really a match made in heaven mm. like the format is born for each other the people who actually listen though and are like affected by this it's not really to their benefit at all so does this, our format of media where we have like 90 minute long podcasts yeah. and, you know, we don't have like this cable news high production thing. Like, is this format of media like, oh, very hard. this has to be difficult for them. This is like almost hostile territory for them. You know what it is? It's uncertainty. Mm. Most of these people are old. They're really old and they don't understand what's going on here. Most of their staff tells them to do it because they know it's cool. Like they know it's a thing, but then they don't really understand what it is. They don't consume it. And the real issue is that people in Washington they really don't consume, especially our type of podcast. If you really ask people around here, like what podcasts do you listen to? It's either going to be pop culture or pod save America, God forbid. Mm. And so it really is like unidirectional in terms of the media that they consume and are familiar with. They think a five minute spot on Morning Joe is like, you made it. Uh, really? Yeah. That's, oh, That's yeah. still it? That's yeah. still pinnacle? Oh, yeah. yeah Not like Joe Rogan so. or anything like that? That hasn't taken <laughs> <No. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> when I When I went on Rogan afterwards... I only had one person who worked on Capitol Hill who reached out, wow. who was like, hey, that was really interesting. Mm. Um, when I used to do Fox News, it was endless. Mm. I mean, endless. Because like, wouldn't yeah. you say Rogan is way more influential than yes. like Morning Joe? Well, I mean, it's on who, mm. you know, and and this is the most important thing. Like voters. Fruit. Okay. Do they, care like, about? they don't care about voters. No, they care about the system. What? Yeah. <laughs> they, they care about we'll get to talking that. to each other. So mm. everything has a function. Like everyone's always like, why does, how can X, Y, and Z paper still exist? And I'm like, because the 500 people who read it are, you know, all work in the Pentagon. Mm. And so like, if you, if you want to influence Ukraine policy, 
are you better off on breaking points or are you better off on the New York Times editorial page? Obviously, on the New York Times editorial page. Why? Because the Secretary of Defense will read it. I could have a segment with, let's say, a million views, something like that, of critiquing Ukraine. Nobody here is going to watch it. So, you know, average Joe might watch it, but like what realistic power do they have over the State Department and the Defense Department? And unfortunately, message to all of you who are listening, you basically have zero. I have zero. So you have less than me. <laughs> wow. Is it literally just a delineation between just like the many and the elites? As in like New York Times is like the elite media institution yeah. that's read by elites to talk about elite things. And then there's podcasts, which is like, you know, the many. Right. Is that delineation here? Call them plebcasts. Absolutely. <laughs> Look at this podcast. It has a huge audience. It's very influential. You know, I was talking, Ryan, uh, right before you came on. I think it's actually crazy that you guys are not getting the due in kind of the SBF TikTok write-up. A TikTok in journalism is like the step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step mm -hmm. because it's very clear that it all really began in the Eric Voorhees SBF confrontation. Oh, you saw that? that happened. Of course I did. Um, oh, man. What, that happened you on think? your show. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that precipitated this, precipitated this, which precipitated the crash. Have you read a New York Times article that referenced it? No. No, mm -mm. but I'm aware of it because, you know, I exist online. And <laughs> I think it is actually criminal to not include that interview because it takes it back to like the genesis of how it all started. So it's complicated. I mean, I, what I really think about it is, and you guys are familiar, CNBC. You know, CNBC, nobody watches CNBC, but the 100,000 people who do, they're all multimillionaires, traders, and billionaires. So like, if you do a one, we call it a hit, you know, in cable news, like you do a hit, which is like a, an appearance on cable television, one appearance on CNBC, it can move markets, it can set the, you know, the discourse on fire. And that has tremendous effect on Federal Reserve policy. You know, something that a lot of people don't take notice of was that story that Jerome Powell has a secret Twitter. He has like a sleeper Twitter. He does. Like Jerome Powell. He has an Anon account? Yeah, he's an Anon account. Oh, God. Jerome Powell is on econ Twitter. So we have what? 15, 25, let's say 25 people who are like really, really big on econ Twitter. Those people have massive influence, right? On literally on the, the thoughts of the Federal Reserve <laughs> chairman. So understanding like who the people in power and what they listen to and what they watch. This is why I spend a lot of time critiquing the mainstream media, even though on some metrics, like we may be bigger than them is I understand where power actually lies. I'm just like, Picturing in my brain, Powell like chip posting memes. With <laughs> yeah, yeah, account. yeah that's <laughs> he probably has. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> oh man, that must be a crazy place to live if you're Powell, though. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we've had a few conversations with politicians. In the past. You know who's been okay though? Mm. I think you guys have had him on, Andrew Yang. Yeah, oh, he's in a league of his own, right? Like, yeah, he does. Right. It's a little bit different than the soundbite. You actually Definitely. get to hear what he thinks. But okay, let's talk about media for, sure. for a minute. I do want to come back to your thoughts on SBF because. We're super curious to hear about. We're trying to make the documentary, at least. Oh, you have to. Yeah. Depends on who makes it, apparently. <laughs> anyway, one of the documentaries. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about um, mainstream media as one of the three heads of this hydra that's kind of an institution that's failing. But I think in order to talk about that story, folks at Bankless should get a little familiar with what you guys are doing at Breaking Points, because this sort of breaks the mold and is maybe part of the antidote. So could you tell us the Genesis story of breaking points. Like, sure. Yeah, how'd you get there and what is it? Yeah, so what happened is, is that, I guess we have to go farther back. So it's about the careers of Crystal and I. So Crystal, you know, ran for Congress unsuccessfully, but started doing some cable news, got picked up by MSNBC, had her own show with three other people, which eventually got canceled in 2015. Now, the reason why that's important is that 
Crystal had a cable news background, hated being on cable news, was actively pushed out of MSNBC for being critical of Hillary Clinton and her corruption. She was literally did a straight to camera monologue in 2014 saying, Hillary, please don't run because of corruption and ties to the Clinton Foundation. Anyway, we can go on to that. And she was eventually called into the head of NBC News's office. And they said that if you ever talk about Hillary again, you have to clear it with the head of the network because the Clinton campaign called them and were like, if you ever do anything like this again, we'll cut your access off, you know, to Hillary and presumably the future president. It's yeah, ridiculous. this is real stuff, right? So what? are you yeah. kidding no, me? No, yeah, this is all real. It's totally real. <laughs> so that's on one end. So Crystal was fired by MSNBC effectively because of that. Second was like my career. I was a White House correspondent. You know, I'd kind of like reached, I'd like made it. And what I mean by that is like in town, if you're a guy, you can get called on by the president. You, I had four interviews with President Trump. The press team and I had an adversarial but good relationship as in they like trusted me. They're like, he's not one of these guys who's going to talk about Mueller. I had my pick of jobs in terms of being another White House correspondent somewhere else. I could have been like a regime player like for my whole life. I would have been fine. Um, but I hated it <laughs> because I just I hated the job. I really hated Why? it. Why? What sucked about it? Well, I mean, being in the press briefing room, like you're amongst the top people in your field. Mm. And so one of the best advice I ever got from someone was what you really need to do is check yourself in a career is look at somebody who's 10 years ahead of you and be like, do I want that job? Hmm. And I was looking at Jim Acosta and all these other clowns in the briefing room, <laughs> just clowning themselves for some extra minutes on cable TV. And I was like, this is fake. I was like, this, can I curse here? Is yeah. that okay? Yes. Uh, it's all right. I was like, crypto. this is all bullshit. This is bullshit. You know? And so I'm like, what about people who like actually want to know what's going on? Because I'm like, this is all a play. It's an internal drama. It was all just a massive charade. It was just like. It's a charade for each other, right. which is what makes it worse, right. right? Yes. It's like everyone is playing for their friends and for their own jobs. Right. And it's I, like political theater. It's theater at the worst level. And I'm like. But what about all these people? I mean, I grew up, I love the news. I've always loved the news. I'm politically active because I was against the Iraq war, hated George W. Bush. And I was like, I want to understand like what is happening here. Like how can such a horrific event like the Iraq war happen? And then the financial crisis, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck is going on anymore. I'm like, what, what is happening? <laughs> you know, it's like, and so like I, because I'm a millennial, you know, I'm 30 years old. And I was like, I have no trust in institutions. And I'm looking around and I don't feel like anybody is really speaking as to like why Trump is even in the president in the first place. It's the right wing media kissing his ass i was getting a lot of appearances on fox and i was like i just i hate this and what really broke me was i had to do this panel about nationalism in the united states there were three people on the panel and it lasted five minutes and i was like you know i have a lot to say about this right. i was like i've read a lot of books i've read I've thought really deeply about like the american character like who we are like why trump is president what this unique moment and i got like maybe 35 40 seconds and at this whole time like i'm a podcast guy like since i'm like 22 years old like i've just been binging sure. podcasts and so i know an alternative exists so that's the pretext then what happens is that crystal was doing a show with another guy named buck sexton who's actually very successful right now but it was more traditional like left right the initial inception was like cable news on television and they were on to something clearly as the success of our show shows but and it was at the hill the hill.com but he was leaving and him and i knew each other and he was like hey man why don't you come sub in for me and i met crystal and it just really clicked like we were really both interested in, in deeper problems going on in america and yeah look we paired up 
got very lucky, started posting on YouTube. And honestly, like I'm still shocked. It was an overnight success. Mm. Like within three months, we went from basically zero YouTube subscribers on the hill to like a hundred thousand. Uh, within six months, it was like six, seven hundred thousand, something like that. It just, it went, you know, oh sky high. And then we went on so, Rogan. Wait, when did you guys start this? 2019. Okay. Uh, like it was June of 2019. And by 2020, I think we had like six or seven hundred thousand in a year we went on rogan and that put us up to like 1.3 million something like that amazing on the hills youtube channel but the problem was is we were still working for corporate media like a dc based institution and the fact is like we became too big like the ethos that we wanted to live by just were not ones that i and her felt comfortable with did you have to censor yourself or couldn't say certain there, things or was it style yes, yeah. or what so none of it is direct it's all a product of their business so i've told these two stories before but these are just the ones that involve me there's many more like this one was maxine waters who you're probably familiar with so here's what I said on the Hill when I was there. I was like, Maxine Waters will be chairwoman of the Financial Services Committee till the day she dies. That's all I said. Because I said in reference to the seniority system, and it was about why I think the seniority system is bad for committee chairmanships and why the Democrats should do away with that. Her press secretary called like my boss's boss at the Hill and said that I was threatening Maxine Waters' life by saying that. What? Yeah, effectively threatened them and told them that if I did not apologize, that they were going to pull out of an event with the Hill. Now, why does that matter? The way that the Hill and the Washington Post and all these people make their money is they do events with politicians, which are sponsored by like Bank of America, like some major bank, right? So this is like major catastrophe. Now, I didn't apologize. I said, fuck you. I'm not going to apologize. Nice. Nice. <laughs> and uh, it, event, it like was smoothed over. But, like I would be lying if that was not up in my head every single time I talk about Maxine Waters. Right. And then another one happened with TikTok. I, was, I did a whole thing about all these former U.S. government officials based on publicly available data working for TikTok. And I was like, this is bullshit. You know, these people are working for the cybersecurity head under Obama. And now they're TikTok's head of trust and safety, whatever. Um, I was like, this is ludicrous. It's a mockery. And again, TikTok, they called my bosses. They said that I was doxing them, that I was threatening them, that I needed to apologize, all this stuff. And like, you know, the, the pressure gets turned up. Again, I did the same thing. I was like, again, fuck you. Like, I will say nothing. And it just, it was getting tense. It's a tense environment. So that's why we decided to leave. And we were like, we can't stay true to ourselves. And thanks to the internet, I mean... You know, we the, the core question was, I was like, are people here because of the hill or are they here because of Crystal and I? And I'm like, I think I know the answer to that. And as time went on, I was like, it was clear, like, it's about us. And look, it doesn't hurt. Rogan said that he would have us on and he would help us launch. So it's like, yeah, it's a pretty good guarantee of at least like moderate success out of the that's gate. Amazing. Amazing. That, that's a great story. Yeah. So one of the questions that we had was how did Breaking Points have like hundreds of thousands of subscribers on day one? There you go. And I think the summary here that I'm hearing is that you, Cigar, a person who's intrinsically interested in politics mm -hmm. and society and just the milieu of the state of culture and things. And the current world, the world of politics, is just not conducive to like true expression. Yes. And like knowing that you've been a podcaster for like a decade now, that means that you are a person who likes to express themselves. I can speak from experience here. And you need long formats and not to have any top-down control as to what you say in order to fully express yourself. And so you slowly just like exited from that 
It's like the being in the world of politics, you need to fit inside of a certain mold in order to exist mm -hmm. there for any certain like a long amount of time. And you were just like resistant to that mold, like F your mold, get out of here. Me and this other person, Crystal, who I'm probably super resonant with, are going to F off and do our own media institution, one that promotes raw authenticity and unfiltered thoughts that are like interesting and true about the world and like it just reminds me of just like so much of the demand there was for like donald trump and bernie sanders yes. who i think are two very authentic people whether you disagree with them or not but the reason why they had so much support was because of their raw authenticity and like why did breaking points have so much success in day one is like Everyone is tired of the goddamn charade yeah. in politics. Yeah. And we just want some real humans to have long form, elaborate thoughts into our ears. And so we can actually move forward as a society. That's like my summary for why the breaking points did so well. Thank you, man. It's very kind. I think you're right. And, you know, there are a lot of costs like when you are here, right? As in you don't get invited to this stuff anymore. Like if you want to be a company man, you're going to have a job your whole life. Like if you want to be a traditional right-wing commentator or left-wing commentator, you will never be unemployed. It's impossible. Like you will always get these fake fellowships and you get to invited to these fake parties, you know, and these galas and black tie and all this stuff. And, you know, inevitably, every single one of those invites dries up. And that's part of the problem is that it's it's a self-reinforcing system. They employ each other, they're friends with each other. And to say even one dissident thing has big, big great social cost to you. And uh, that's one of those things. You have to be willing to just let go of it. You just have to say, I don't care anymore. I just, one of those, one of those areas where you can't care and you really have to accept, like you're just not going to have friends because so much of the system is built on teams. Mm -hmm. And when you're independent by definition, like you're not playing for a team. You have to say what you're actually thinking. It feels like 1984 where like you have to always have your guns out being prepared for yeah. the next person who's going to ax you and turn you in for saying the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, I really face this during the Trump thing, during Stop the Steal. I got so much pressure from the right to validate this. And I was like, guys, I was like, this is bullshit. Like, I'm sorry. Where does that pressure come from? It's, like, are you talking about when you were at the Hill? Or? No, no, this is like friends, like people who are uh, in the right wing kind of commentator system. They were like, I thought you were one of us. Like, he's a cuck now, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a cuck. I'm a cuck because I think the election wasn't stolen. And it's like, maybe you are. Like, it's like, you know, like maybe you're the cuck. <laughs> You're the guy. You're the guy who literally is taking their cues from Trump and, and <laughs> is so af so afraid of pissing off your cultivated like right wing only audience that you're not willing to say what you actually think. Like put two drinks in any one of these guys and like they all know it's bullshit. And we're lucky because we have right left audience. So I was like, look, if you really don't want to listen to me because I'm not going to validate this, I'm like, fuck off. I'm like, I don't care. Do you know what? Okay, so two things yeah. I want to test you about. This is just like you know, creator to creator, kind of independent. Sure. Like that's what we're doing at Bankless. But it's like, okay, so there's one line of question I have, which is like, how do you deal with all of that backlash? Like, yeah. how do you deal with all of the just dickheads on Twitter? Mm. Like, how do you deal with all of the negativity and hate that seems surface? And honestly, it doesn't really matter what you do. Stalker, like mm -hmm. you're going to get it. Yes, I mean, we are. get it at Bankless. I, I bet. <laughs> and people blame us for things we think are unfair. You know, like you want to be as a creator, open to the feedback from your community. So you can't completely shut it out. And yet, if you like let your mind be completely open to that, mm -hmm. it can really taint how you see yourself in the you world. You can get captured by that. It will ruin you. Can you can get captured yeah. by that too. So that is a different form of pressure. It's not the, you know, your boss 
at the cable news company saying, hey, you can't say this and this because Hillary Clinton called. Mm-hmm. But it is like, I don't know, the social media pressure. So, like, so that's my first question is like, how do you deal in that world? Because I'm having trouble. <laughs> you know, I actually, I consider myself lucky from coming from the realm of politics. Is okay. It's a blood sport. Like, so for me, it's like, this is the game. Yeah. Like I, I, oh, you know, I knew what I was getting. You into. signed up for it? Yeah, exactly. Like, by definition, what is the one thing they always say never to talk about? Religion and politics, right? And so I did that from the beginning. Like for me, it was built in that no matter what you say, half the people are going to be extremely pissed off at it. And that has just been the case for me, like from the beginning. That said, I mean, look, you're right. The advice I would give is to try, well, so Rogan, there's a lot of different schools of thought. Rogan is of the thought, don't even read the good stuff because the good stuff is just as poisonous to you as the bad. Mm. And by that- You just don't read any of it? Right, because look, you guys have a successful podcast and you have an audience. Like the real question you need to ask is like, of what utility am I getting out of this, especially relative to the type of content that I'm producing? I would like to split the difference. And I'm lucky actually, because we have paying subscribers. And so those are the people that I actually pay attention to way more so than the casual. So Mm. one guy drops in for one YouTube video, like, look, no offense, I appreciate the view, but if you leave a negative comment, like, I don't care. But if you're one of our $10 a month, like paying subscribers, and you have like a long critique of something that you used to like and you haven't seen in a while and would like to see more because you want the show to succeed, yeah, I'll read that. I would consider that. Mm-hmm. And also, if you tell me something that you really, really liked about the show, X, Y, and Z, I'll be like, oh, that's useful. And you can try and aggregate it. You know what my real advice is? Try and meet people in person as much as possible. Because it's uh, a David the, that the, <laughs> the online stuff is all bullshit. It's all I cannot bullshit, tell you dude. how yeah. much I have learned from meeting my fans in person, mm-hmm. like walking down the street and somebody says, hey, you know, I'll tell you about rising and breaking points. Something I didn't even realize, production value. Mm. So many people have told me in person, never in the comments, I love your show because I feel like I can send it to my dad and it's not a guy in the basement who is articulating my thoughts. So it's like somebody that my parents mm. might feel like they could respect and will understand, but understand my politics, like the frustration that I feel with the system, the fact that you guys are trained, you know, uh, from the mainstream media perspective, you know, you're educated, you use diction, prop, you know, like speak well, all the little things, which shouldn't matter, but obviously matter. You know, here, you know, it's crypto, so I'm wearing my hoodie, but uh, <laughs> like when I do my show, like- You can put on a tie. I wear a suit, like I wear a yeah. full suit. I'm very proud of the way that I dress because I think that it conveys that I'm taking this job very seriously. Like I'm taking it, it's a serious endeavor of which I prepare a lot for in order to convey this message in a format that they appreciate, but more importantly, they feel appreciated to share. And I was actually really validated, you know, the day that you and I are filming, the Spotify rap thing just came out. Yeah, and in the top. it turns out we were one of the top, like in the top, what, 1% globally of shared podcasts. Wow. So people really felt like to share, I mean, that's the ultimate validation of your content, right? To not only consume, but to say, you have to listen to this. So that's something that I take really seriously. And again, I really only learned it from meeting people in person. So I would encourage you guys to do like live events, not even online. I'm talking in person, mm-hmm. like face-to-face. That is the key. David is a conference king. He's yeah. been to like 15 yeah. and I haven't been, but like live events is sort of interesting. I Okay, so thank you for that, mm-hmm. Sagar. I think that's really good advice. And I do think that crypto can be every bit as blood sporty 
as politics oh, okay, these yeah. days and super sometimes trial. worse because we have tokens involved yeah we have tokens <laughs> and we have like scammers and we have we real like, wealth <laughs> yeah okay and then it also blends religion as well like some of these you know oh, yeah, crypto yeah. communities are like quasi-religious all right the other piece i was curious about because when we were talking about like the problems with mainstream media mm-hmm. and you're sort of describing some like personal experience i want to see if we can extrapolate that but it just it, it feels like um if i were to sum that up in one word it would be capture yes captured like mainstream media institutional media seems like it's captured Mm -hmm. i mean if hillary clinton could call somebody from their staff and just get them to not say a certain thing that is capture and so it's great that you and crystal are able to escape that i think like look financial media is also captured very much so big hedge funds cnbc who do you think watches those shows right cnbc finance same thing that's why they don't talk about crypto they don't give it good coverage it's not that's why bankless has found its niche but i guess a question for you is like how do you and crystal prevent getting captured yourselves great question all right because like Uh, you were talking about business model piece here but like that could still come in i mean you could still like we know how this works in order to get the person interview you might have to say some things, mm-hmm. for instance, right? So there's guest capture. There's also like, if you have any sponsorship revenue, maybe there's sponsorship capture. And do they have an inf- do they have anything to do with what you say? You can also get, like Sam Harris talks about this, captured by your community too. Oh yeah, big So time. sometimes that can be like, you can't say anything. You've built this community that believes one thing and then Sagar comes out and he's like saying something contrary to the faith. And then like the faithful are like, wait, you can't say that. I'm quitting. Like uh, no more subscription for me. So what are your thoughts on this topic of capture? It's a great question. And actually, that's another thing I'm so proud of is that we thought about this from top to bottom before it was launched. Like we conceived of it specifically to not fall into this. So for example, you talked about sponsorships. We don't do any host read ads. All the ads on our podcast are dynamically inserted Hmm. by megaphone. So it's basically like a YouTube ad, but in podcast form. Do we make one-tenth the amount of money? Correct. Is it worth it to not have somebody call me and say, I didn't like what you said about Balenciaga? Yeah, it is. And that's also why we are able to pitch to say, hey, $10 a month, like pay for the premium subscription. On that front, this is another benefit of doing a genuine right-left show is part of what you're signing up for is by definition to hear something that you don't necessarily agree with half of the time when Crystal is speaking or when I'm speaking. So we've kind of cultivated an environment and an audience itself, which doesn't cancel because of something that you say about, you know, one-off. Look, some people have, you know, in the past, I remember during Afghanistan, a lot of people wanted us to criticize Biden. And I was like, no, I was like, I support this policy. And we can get into that if you want. And I was like, I'm sorry. I was like, I've been waiting my whole life to get out of Afghanistan. And I was like, I've never seen a war end in a good way. And while, yeah, I think it's shameful, like certain things weren't tactically done. I was like, it's better than the alternative, which is spending $300 million a year for nothing to get guys get blown up in IEDs and just stay there for the next 15 years for a fake cause and a fake military and a fake government. And that was very controversial. That was, you really weren't going to hear that. And a lot of people were pissed off. And same thing. It was built in from the ground up of mm. if a certain segment cancels, so be it. And also, we have three-legged stool of revenue. We got podcast revenue, YouTube revenue, and premium revenue, all three of which kind of reinforce each other. So I thought about it from the business perspective. But it's also baked in, kind of like I said, ideologically of, look, you're not always going to agree. That's fine. The whole core tenant of the show is, 
you can disagree, and you can also still arrive at some very basic starting points and conclusions, which are good for you, and they'll make you a happier person. So when you talk to Crystal and you're on the show, do you ever get like meta about this as in like the construction of the business and the business model? Because like yeah, all the time right now, like Bankless, we have like a lot of the similar business models, revenue sources that you do mm-hmm. sponsor revenue, which is synonymous with podcasts and the YouTube. They're the same sponsors. Right. We also have like our inner circle where you can get like the ad free premium feed and you get to be in the inner circle. And that's when you were talking about like receiving advice from people that you know are paying you $10 a month or whatever, then like we kind of have that same thing. Do you ever like talk about the philosophy of your own business while on breaking points? Do you ever like get meta about it? Yeah, it actually just happened. One of our shows was blocked manually by FIFA. We've been doing a lot of criticism of FIFA and the Qatari government. And this is just amazing to me. They pulled off our video, which was about the Iranian team refusing to sing the national anthem, which was an act of great courage. And they manually hit us with copyright to block our entire video. And look- Wait, wait, is yeah. this on YouTube? Yeah, it was on YouTube. Oh, wow. Um, and not only that, they actually, we have an unlisted feed that goes to our premium subs, a video link. They blocked that too, which is kind of amazing. Wow. And I mean, look, it's a blatant violation of the fair use doctrine, which if, you know, for a basic explanation is that- You are allowed to use copyrighted material as long as it is not the core tenant of your video. It has news value and you're using it to talk and convey about something else within two minutes of content. It was 10 seconds, clearly, clearly within the bounds of fair use. And it was, you know, it was abused by FIFA because they don't want people to talk about that, probably covering for the Iranian regime. And anyway. We did a whole segment about that and we were explaining to the audience. We're like, look, this is why we built our business this way. I mean- I tell people that all the time. I'm like, our videos get demonetized. We know we're getting screwed with algorithmically for things that we're talking about. And this isn't even a censorship argument. YouTube is a business. The economy is in the shitter right now. They have ad CPMs they have to hit. So how do you do that? You recommend anodyne bullshit content about giving $15,000 away to a homeless guy. (laughs) And then you serve a ton of ads on top of that. Like you don't serve videos about Russia and Putin and nuclear war or a deep dive into, I don't know, like Chinese protests because that's controversial. And this is a fight that I've had with them so many times, even in person. I've told YouTube this in person. I'm like, look, you guys claim you want to be a place for news. Sometimes the news is bad. Sometimes the news is really fucking bad. It's sad. People get raped. People get killed. Children, you know, exploited. Like, but we are in a society, like, you have to talk about that. And so for us, like, our business is built such that we can talk about that, even when we know we're going to take a hit. Like, there's one version of Breaking Points, which is only YouTube ad supported. That's a nightmare. I know what that looks like. That's just chasing clicks, chasing clout stupid ass reaction videos and then there's the version that we have right now you know sometimes we'll do like 25 30 minute uh, deep dives into russian nuclear doctrine Mm. you just can't do that anywhere else and that's what i love about it yeah i love it too honestly i think this form of media is going to eat some of the like kind of i mean people see sort of the corruption they see the capture they're not stupid they're they know they come for the they sign up for the in-depth conversation but let me ask you so you are a creature like us of social media and like digital media right Mm -hmm. and that's kind of a double-edged sword Right. So like, I guess a few thoughts to prompt this conversation, because I want to get your perspective on like, you know, social media, good or bad, media, good or bad. One thing that's cool about like podcast and YouTube is like 
podcast, we have an RSS feed. Yeah. We control that RSS and, feed. Yeah. It's ours. Right. It's like a nice protocol that we can use to distribute. I love the RSS. Yeah. Decentralized technology. It's decentralized technology, right? And so like we can put it out on Spotify, but we're not dependent on Spotify. We can put it out on Apple. We're not dependent on them. If you don't like those products, if they somehow delisted us, then go spin up another podcast player mm-hmm. and you can get our podcast. YouTube is not like that. Right, like there's no RSS feed for YouTube. We're kind of, and we've been to platform before. I think like 24 hours really? or something. They just pulled all of our crypto <laughs> content. Yeah, and you know the CEO of YouTube reached out. They apologized, that sort of thing. But it's like an algo flagged us, and they talking about crypto. No good. Yeah. So we have that piece of it, right? It's not as decentralized as we'd like it to be, of course. And then the other piece we have is, um, and social media can be a place where. I mean, David and I met on social media, right? Like we get so much information. I get so much enrichment mm-hmm. from like sources like Twitter, for example. I, I do think it's the base layer. Of, like you're talking about Powell. Yep. He logs in, he gets like, that's how he decides when to move the rates. I mean, this is a wealth of information sits at the bottom of society, but it's also this place of outrage. It's also this, like all of this, you know, it's hard to verify things, this kind of disinformation that goes on as well. And so people have different answers to that. Of, like let's censor it, let's not censor it. What's your take on social media in general? Is it good? Is it bad? How have you leveraged it? What have you learned about it? And where do you think it should go? So I have a complicated relationship like you guys. You think I'd be sitting here if it wasn't for social media? (laughs) In 1990, I'm chasing a Fox News show, which I'm lucky to get in, you know, at 56 years old. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, look, I'm just going to look at the good. I think that, like you said, Ryan, you and I connected because of social media. That's how I know what you guys are. When the SBF thing happens, what do I do? I look into the deep dive. I read a good profile. I go back and I watch, you know, Eric Voorhees interview with you guys. We're on the confrontation. I go, you know, I can look at 12, 15 different sources all at once. I can see aggregate and awesome Twitter threads. And yeah, look, I mean, I think it's just incumbent upon us as people. And look, I think it is what you make of it. And you can control your user experience if you want to. I think the biggest problem is self-control. And, you know, maybe that's a little bit too individualistic, but some of the best health and fitness content that you can consume is on Instagram. And also some of the worst health and fitness content you can consume is on Instagram. Some of the best financial advice you will ever learn is on Twitter and some of the worst. Same with news, same, you know, with every category. So it's really incumbent upon people to use these things in a way that benefit them. And for me, I have connected and met so many people on social media that I never would have met. Otherwise, I've learned so much random information and expanded my perspectives and uh, just went deep and even met people, you know, in real life that I've literally only have connected with on Twitter. So I look, I think it's a net positive. I think it's a net good. Does that mean that there aren't existential threats around, you know, the policies of misinformation, all that? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm a big believer in just regulating social media, quote unquote, with the base layer of First Amendment. If it's consistent, we have 200 years of case law with the First Amendment here in the United States. If it's consistent with the First Amendment and it's not illegal, let fly. Algorithmically, everything. Is it fun all the time? No. But guess what? Like living in a society is not fun all the time either. The Brave Wallet is your secure, multi-chain on-ramp into Web3, and it's built directly into the Brave privacy browser. Gone are the days of managing multiple wallet extensions that put you at risk of phishing, spoofs, and tracking. With the Brave Wallet, you can securely manage your crypto assets across more than 100 different chains, including Ethereum, Layer 2s, Solana, and more, all without downloading risky extensions. 
Brave Wallet is easy to set up and removes the headache of jumping between wallets and extensions. It's lightweight, but packed with great features like built-in token swaps, buying and holding NFTs with a gallery view, and support for hardware wallets. But also much more than that, because Brave is shipping new features every single month with a mission to make Web3 easier to navigate for its over 55 million users. Wallet extensions are a thing of the past. So get started with Brave's Web3 Ready browser today and experience a decentralized web seamlessly without all the clutter. You can download the browser at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. The reality today is that five corporations control the entire world of social media. They own our names, they restrict our content, they monitor our every move. And their time is up, thanks to our sponsor, Deso. Deso is a layer one blockchain built from the ground up to decentralize and scale social networks. With Deso, you can own your own identity, content, and social graph, and take it with you across hundreds of applications already built on the censorship resistant Deso blockchain. Deso's storage advantages make it finally possible to build infinite state applications that can efficiently store and index large amounts of content and data fully on-chain. Deso also offers multiple crypto-native monetization primitives for developers and creators, including social NFTs, social DAOs, social tokens, and social tipping. So in order to experience the social layer of Web3, go to Deso.com and claim your username. That's D-E-S-O.com. If you've been listening to Bankless, you know that we're fans of the modular blockchain thesis. The idea that blockchains will separate execution from data availability and consensus, allowing all three to become the best versions of themselves. And Fuel has built the fastest modular execution layer in the industry. By supporting parallel transaction execution, Fuel unlocks significantly faster throughput for the web-free world. Fuel also goes beyond the limitations of the EVM with its own Fuel VM which is more efficient and optimized, opening up the design space for developers. And lastly, Fuel brings a powerful developer experience with its own domain-specific language, Sway, and a supportive toolchain called Fork. With Fuel, you can have the benefits of smart contract languages like Solidity while adopting the improvements made by the Rust tooling ecosystem, letting the Fuel development environment go beyond the limitations of the EVM. If you want to learn more, there's a link in the show notes to see how you can get involved with the Fuel network. So on the censorship debate, like, yeah. you know, the Twitter censorship debate, must taking over, like, yeah. do you have a side? Do you pick a side? Or what would you say about this? I, I see, this is another thing. Look, I love Elon, like, from a, just like a vibes perspective. Like, look, anybody who's ever been in a Tesla, you'll think differently. That <laughs> I actually think that that is an important fact is like a lot of people don't actually understand how revolutionary the car itself is. Like you basically turned a piece of mechanical hardware into a software, which is stunning. I mean, getting into a Tesla is like the first time you saw an iPhone 4. Totally. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I you do. know, the silver iPhone and you're like, holy shit, this is a phone. That's what it's like getting into one. It's insane. So I respect him from a baseline entrepreneurial level. That said, I think he's making some mistakes. I think Twitter blue is a huge mistake. And the reason why is I think what we were talking about, Jerome Powell, all of that veracity of elite information is probably the core value of Twitter. Everything I've read says that Twitter ads are bullshit and they're actually not particularly good ROI, part of why the company never had major revenue like Meta or like Google. So I'm a fan of charging, like creating some sort of Twitter for enterprise product, basically tiered pricing based upon the number of followers that you have and then the number of tweets that you may want to send out paired, especially with like a customer service function. You know, I've thought about that a lot. Like if you ever have a problem with a company, what's the best way to get in touch with them? You tweet at them and then American Airlines or whatever tweets back at you. Why do they get to do that for free? 
Like that's a great, that's a, you know, the best real time customer service hmm. software ever existed. It's like, you should charge them for it and then build them like a CRM customer relations thing on the back end that they can use and they could pay a shitload of money for that and probably would but put that. That's aside. the first good original take on Twitter that I've heard in a long time. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. I've really thought about that one because, but the reason why I care is I want them to have recurring enterprise level revenue yeah. so that they're not impacted by the advertisers because Elon is really flailing around right now. He's got a couple of, you know, the content moderation council I thought was a disaster. That's exactly what Zuck did over at Facebook. We all know that it was a total clusterfuck. And then every time when Zuck actually asked them about the whole Trump getting deplatformed thing, the Supreme Oversight Board was like, no, you decide. It's your company. So I'm like, look, like this is all a farce. Second, he said freedom of speech is not freedom of reach, that we will downrank, quote, hateful or harmful tweets. Who decides? You know, and I don't want Elon to decide. I don't want anyone to decide. That's why I said things should be consistent with the First Amendment, because then you get algorithmic treatment of everything consistent with as long as it's not illegal, as long as it's not doxing, it's a free for all. So on those couple of fronts, like I'm not a huge fan of Twitter Blue just because I don't think it will actually enhance the Twitter experience as evidenced by a lot of the fake accounts that happened. I want him to set up proper recurring revenue at an enterprise level that doesn't impact the veracity of information. And two, I do not think different algorithmic treatment of tweets is a good idea because fundamentally I don't trust human judgment as to what is harmful, what is misinformation, what is true information. Oh, that was another one, the community notes function. I'm totally against it. I'm totally against any fact check ability to dispute or anything. Arrangement of facts, as I know, and as you guys know, from doing editorial stuff is by definition a fact checkable. Like you can always say, you left this out. You didn't put in enough nuance. Like let everything float. If people want to correct it with replies or quote tweets or whatever, they can. I'm really just- You're kind of saying just like let the free market take it. Yes. I mean, it's worked for 200 years. It's been a good system. (laughs) I think that like crypto people listening would have a lot of resonance in terms of what you're saying, because what you're doing is you're going back to like base principles and core protocols. Like we very much think of like the constitution as a core protocol that governs society. Now that was written in analog documents, but we also have protocols that guide the internet, right? And we're just talking about RSS. Right. Well, that's a self-sovereign protocol, isn't it? Like we could take our RSS feed and go wherever we want. We don't have to distribute on Spotify or, or Apple. We can distribute wherever. I, I think the problem with the internet right now is we have built so much in kind of the outside of the open internet and in kind of the application layer. Absolutely. This is very much where we see like crypto like playing a role. So like part of our solution to that was like, yes to the first amendment, right? Would be a crypto take, but then it's also yes to credibly neutral protocols mm-hmm. that don't get to decide. Right. So like Twitter could just be a protocol, just like email, TCP IP, right? And you could have clients and it doesn't judge at the, the base level what the text actually is. There's no human decision makers involved. There's no kind of like governance committee that's saying this is bad and this is good and this is information, this is not. But you can layer applications on top of that and people get to choose their own experience. We've gotten away from that with um, the app store and with the Twitter and with Facebook and that sort of thing. And that's why we, we see part of crypto is like restoring some of those values in small ways of like back to the open internet as it was originally envisioned. But it's very much base protocols type of thinking. I think everyone uh, gets caught up in this 
well, if our guy gets control of Twitter, it's all going to be great. Yeah, right. And the other side's going, no, if our person is in charge of Twitter, it's going to be great. And it's like an endless fight. And we're not solving things at the protocol layer. I don't know if you see that too, but that's what we see. I absolutely see it. And actually, my great fear is that they're coming after email, coming after mm. Google Docs. My biggest fear is ISP level blocks, which I do think is coming. We are one step away. We are one crazy event away from an ISP like... Remember the parlor thing? That was a big event. And look, I'm not saying I like parlor. Like, I'm not saying I even like what was going on on parlor. But the app store level, Amazon, AWS type deplatforming, all synchronous, despite the fact they're all different companies, I think that set the stage for one day where only one crazy event like Jan 6, 9 11, or BLM protest away, depending on who's in charge, from some craziness. Hang on, can we just take a moment and actually provide some clarity for people who don't know what the Parlor event is? And yeah, this is a, as a result of Parlor was like where a bunch of the alt right went to this new app, Twitter like app. It was a Twitter competitor. Yeah. Twitter basically. competitor, right. And a lot of the alt right January 6 insurrection movement coordination occurred there. It's like when Donald Trump got deplatformed, right. the alt-right decided that mainstream social media platforms were not welcoming to them. So they went to this place called Parler. And then what you're saying is there was this coordinated effort to deplatform Parler, the platform yep. from the app store, from just wherever you can access it. And what you're saying is that that was just like too close to the metal of like base layer internet protocol level censorship. Yes. Well, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, this was what scared the shit out of me. Because I saw, when that happened, the floodgates were open. The censors in Washington at the governmental level were floating a Department of Homeland Security Patriot Act 2.0 to go after Jan Sixers. And, you know, under the guise, you're like, what was happening? Well, there was a New York Times piece, I think, written by Kevin Roos, which set up the war on Signal, on the Signal protocol. And they were like, hey, some Jan Six, mm. you know, alt-right figures signaled each other. So we need to go after you know, end-to-end -end encryption. That's scary. That's the end game. And, and it's like, the, the end game is going after the protocol itself. And so like, as you said, like I am a major believer in the base layers, in establishing them, keeping them neutral, keeping them out of the hands of the feds, even with the private companies, Ooh. making it sure that they know. It's like, you cannot fuck with this because when you do, it opens up. Yes. It, it is the gates of hell. Like, and look at China right now. The protests, I mean- I don't think people understand. They can track you when you're wearing a face mask and sunglasses in the nighttime. I don't want to live in that society, people. Like, <laughs> I mean, we hard resonate with the points that you're making. Like, it is just like, yeah. and these attacks It's almost could... exactly what we say when we talk about preserving the credible neutrality of the Ethereum protocol. These are the same words. Yes. It's cryptography, yes. right? And the nightmare scenario is like a state-level ban on encryption technology, right? Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And to be clear, these attacks can come from the right or the left. Anyone. Anyone. Exactly. Look, the Trump administration took extraordinary actions through the Department of Justice to pursue emails of journalists and subpoenas. And that's, you know, that's another black box that all three of us, we have no idea. Like the feds can ex access your information with basically nothing. And then on top of that, look, the point is go read the Wired article that recently came out about the Google dragnet over January 6th. They used subpoenaed location data from thousands of people based on cell tower pings 
to find out exactly who was at a protest and geolocate them and then use that in court on top of using cell tower data to even pull the call logs of members of Congress and senators who were inside the building on that event. Is all of this an apology for January 6th? No. But do I think that we should give up like our location data on our cell phones and normalize like AT&T just willingly giving this stuff away just because the feds are doing an investigation? Like, absolutely not. Like, we have to preserve this. How about this, Sagar? So like uh, AT&T dials that in with the fed and then disconnects your bank account. Boom. Basically, yeah. based on this. Canada. Right. But you know, it's funny. What happened? Remember the Canada protest? That was the biggest story mm-hmm. in the country. The trucker in Ottawa, yes. With the truckers before Ukraine. They actually got kind of screwed because Russia invaded yeah. Ukraine and they like got wiped off in terms of attention. But yeah, I mean, they were deleting your bank account. Mm-hmm. They're seizing crypto. I mean, I mean, what did you guys think of that in terms of uh, from a crypto level? How do we get around that? So how do we get around that? Yeah. This is why bankless, honestly, Sagar, this is why mm-hmm. trustless peer to peer money systems. And this is our great fear is all of those things you mentioned, these are hazards. These are externalities of entering the digital world that societies are creating. There's all of these digital fingerprints that can be tracked and can be captured. And so like one of the things we see is like cash is going away mm-hmm. very obviously. I don't know. I don't use cash. It's so inconvenient. I never use When it. I'm talking about right. cash, I'm talking about like actual green in the US anyway, bills in your wallet. Like nobody does this anymore. And what was cash though? Well, that was like peer to peer. Yes. It was private. The government couldn't get involved and it was a bare instrument. So I could give it to you and you'd have it. Peer to peer transaction. In the digital world, we lose that, but we're not replacing that with anything in the traditional banking system. Yeah. US dollars in your Wells Fargo account, very confiscatable, is not peer to peer. And so what crypto does is it preserves sort of access to value transmission networks for people in case maybe their nation state goes wrong and it provides a banking layer to that too. But Ryan, do you remember when we were talking about the truckers who are getting debanked? Yes. We talked about this on like our weekly roll-up show, our new show where we cover the week and the events. We talked about this Mm -hmm. and we were like, this is bad. This is why we go bankless, blah, blah, blah. What's interesting from this, from the media perspective, we were talking about audience capture is like a decent number of our listeners came to us on Twitter and were like, well, have you guys seen some of the bullshit that yes. the truckers are doing in Canada? A lot of Canadians. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and like, well, to some degree, like, no, I hadn't heard of every single thing that the truckers were doing. But like we got blowback from our own community. It's like, well, I mean, like we all want to go bankless, but you guys, they were effing up yeah. the roads. Yeah, they're like, are you on the side of the truckers? And we're like, no, we're on the side of <laughs> <Yeah>. base principles, <laughs> yeah. all right? Like, when did we think seizing I, money I is okay? You know, I just went through this. I just went through this with the whole Andrew Tate thing. Mm. I don't know if you guys know Andrew <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, And I was like, look, I'm not saying I like Andrew Tate, <laughs> but when you have a guy declared bad and then he's unpersoned from the internet in 48 hours, that's pretty scary. Yeah. And everyone was like, well, is you saying Andrew Tate is okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. I know. I'm saying, how do you know? Why is this how do you know hard? who's next? Right. Who decides? Mm-hmm. I know who decides. It's Taylor Lorenz. Mm-hmm. It's Brandy, whatever her name is, over at NBC News, Ben Collins, these like misinformation experts, Oliver Darcy. They can end you right. overnight. Like, do you want to live in that world? I don't want to live in that world. And yeah, I don't know why it is so difficult. And I empathize with that because what they do is, of course, the point is, it's always going to be an edge case, guys. Right. Precedents are set in the edge cases. Mm. And then they creep in. First, it was Islamic terrorism. That's the funny thing. Like, everybody was cool 
when it was just Islamic terrorists. But you know, it's funny, my career, early career was writing about terrorism. And I rem- I'll vividly remember this. You know, I, I was a typical, I didn't really think about it. I was like, yeah, fuck these guys. I hope they get arrested. I was reading a, uh, I was reading an affidavit by an FBI agent about a guy, you wouldn't even know his name, some 19 year old who got arrested for trying to join ISIS. FBI agent goes on Twitter, sees one guy who tweeted something crazy, makes contact. Now, after making contact, they chat for 12 hours a day for like nine months. And then the FBI agent is like, hey, you should go to Syria and fight for ISIS. And the guy's like, okay, buys a ticket to Syria. That's still not enough. And he's like, all right, I'll meet you at the airport at the gate. He shows up at the gate and they arrest him for material support to terrorism that's 25 years in prison. I mean, we're getting real close to entrapment there. Wow. <laughs> like, it's like, because it's that question of, well, would he have bought that ticket to Syria if you never asked him? I mean, it's up in the air, right? By the way, there are a lot of cases like this. There was this guy named the Herald Square Bomber. If you look into it, they basically told him to do it. They set the whole thing up. They were like, go buy it from this guy, the bomb materials, all of this. And, you know, now it's it's a question of like, you know, we had the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping case. Like you had 14 people involved, 12 are FBI informants. It's like how many, there's more feds involved in this case than there are actual mm. conspirators. Soccer, it sounds like you support terrorism. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> So we've been talking about a lot about like censorship and the way that it relates to media. Yeah. And I do want to zoom back out a little bit to dive down into a slightly different rabbit hole. One of the ethos Sagar about crypto is that we have this like blank slate to do everything again from scratch, mm-hmm. right? Like we can rebuild this system and hopefully not F it up this time because our current systems are largely captured, corrupted and broken. And so one of the new pillars out of this new industry that we call crypto is of course the new media, new media institutions. And there's plenty of media institutions inside of crypto. We have like the journalists and the news desks like Coindesk and The Block. We have like smaller, more indie reporting entities like The Defiant and Bankless. But since we have this blank new slate of media institutions, do you have any advice for us now that we have this new slate to not F it up? Like what lessons do you have from breaking points that, that we should apply in this crypto industry to make sure that this whole system can perpetuate into the future without corruption? Start with uh, first principles. Start with building it so that you can't go awry in the way that they did. And the way that it, everything went awry for them ultimately came down to centralization. I actually encourage you guys to read about the history of cable news. It's fascinating. There's a great biography and history of Ted Turner, of CNN, what it was originally conceived of, how everybody thought it cable was so stupid, 24-hour coverage. Ultimately, it led to the partisan wars driven by a variety of things from ratings to budgets from the rise of MSNBC, eventually to Roger Ailes creating Fox News and basically creating in 1996 the media environment that we all recognize today, which was set on fire by the Monica Lewinsky scandal. It's actually relatively recent, Hmm. the world that we're all living in right now. It's a hopeful story because you can read that and say, oh, here's the exact time when everything went wrong. It was Lewinsky when everybody came obsessed with that. And then it was 9-11, a uniparty move of using this new form of communication to convince the American people to go to war under false pretenses. And from that period, everything stems, all of our politics today. So now we're living in this reimagining in the internet. And I still think we're very much in the infancy of the internet. Something AGM, Antonio Garcia Martinez, likes to talk about is, look, like the internet is like the printing press. You know, it, it was chaos when the printing press was invented. 
There was a 30 years war. You know, the internet has barely been around. Like the printing press set uh, revolutions and uh, religious. The Reformation. I yeah, mean, the Reformation. Yeah, like Protestant. You know, kings and queens died. You know, like the revolutions of 1700. Of, then the, the glorious revolution. Like so many things happened as a result of the printing press. We are in our printing press moment. So many things can happen. So to use that analogy from a media perspective, think about the incentives that were bad in finance. For financial media in particular, I think where it all went wrong was access. So what I'm reading right now is a biography of Warren Buffett. It's called Snowball. It's written in 2009. I highly recommend it. The reason why is Buffett's life and his wealth effectively tracks the U.S. financial sophistication from the day he began investing in like 1930s all the way up until he becomes the multi-billionaire, one of the richest men on the planet that it is today. A lot of it was through centralization, through access, through manipulation. And so what I would encourage you guys to do is think about how you can continue to grow and kind of stay true to an audience, not just an audience, to stay true to yourselves, information while growing your audience without having to succumb to the inevitability when you do surpass them. Because you also have to plan for an environment in which you are the new mainstream. Nobody at CNN and all of them ever predicted they would be where they are today. and But that was a big mistake by doing so. So you kind of have to imagine and think about what it looks like whenever you are a big player. Because that is when a lot, you know, it's easy for me to say, like all the things I'm saying. When it's going to be harder, when... Let's say breaking points, you know, 10 years from now, and the president of the United States calls me and says, I don't agree with what you said. No matter who you are, I can tell you, I've been on the side of that phone whenever people, very, very powerful people talk to you. It's scary. It's scary. It gets in your head. And people over time, it eroded. They gave into that. So you have to plan and think about for that time, if should it inevitably come. And then you got to put the work in. That's the other. One thing we've tried to maximize for yeah. on the, I guess the sort of the freedom side and the autonomy side is never to be beholden to anyone. Yes. So key. And so like never take venture capital. Correct. Right. And Absolutely. because, hey, you don't have to, you could bootstrap this thing. I mean, we have the distribution technology now us. with the internet. Yeah. Look at us. And like, look yeah, at look us. at us. And like, <laughs> look at us. Yeah, look at us. Yeah. And like, um, I mean, then that gives you another master to serve. Somebody who wants their five, 10X, yep. right? You go public, you have, another set of shareholders. We don't want yep. that. I mean, we want the content creators, even myself, to be like the people making the calls. And then another aspect of that is like, we do have some sponsorship revenue, but like we have to be willing to fire any sponsor we have at Absolutely. any point in time. And so we can't have mouths to feed on our team that would cause us to have to make some kind of compromise type decision. So we, we don't want to grow too big, do you know? Like we want to have enough margin in what, mm -hmm. how we're building this. Well, thing. you want to scale sustainably. That's what you scale want to do. Scale sustainably. Yeah. And so that we always have the ability, the leverage to be like, mm, this doesn't fit with our brand anymore. You did this, see you later. And we're not afraid to tell you that like, you know, your product was shit. We thought it was good and it was shit. Like we have to have that ability to fire our sponsors. So that's another piece that I guess we got to maximize. And, and But do you think it's inevitable that new media just like eats old media or do you think know. these like the cable news msnbc's are like yeah. because i could tell you people in my age group i mean i don't like consume any of that all my media is internet media basically it's podcasts it's like sources that i trust like i don't trust what's happening on fox news or cnn so like i don't i don't tune in there what i have done many monologues on is we're in the phase where they're waking up mm. so now they know so previously it was you don't exist so if you ask people in washington 
before they'd be like, oh, he's wasting his time with YouTube, you know, whatever. That's how they love to denigrate you, YouTube. As if YouTube isn't the most powerful, isn't way more powerful than cable news. Now it's, oh, he's an asshole. <laughs> he's been saying this stuff on his show. So now they're at a point, they, they get it. They know it exists. But next is the war. And the war is where the danger comes because that is when they start to pressure exactly what I was talking about. Right. The ISPs, they start to pressure YouTube. They start to try and strike preferential deals. They use their legacy brand and influence to effectively guarantee them a place at the table that they don't deserve. So I don't think it's inevitable. I think it will be a massive war. You think it's a fight? Oh. You know, another way that they might fight the war is... Um, fight to the death. Uh, bribe. Yeah. Well, a bribe. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, breaking points. Okay, I'm CNN. Right. This is a real thing now. Like, um, how about an acquisition? Yeah, I'd be like, fuck you. I, uh, but again, like, how many people are going to say fuck you? Right. Some people, listen, I mean... I've been there when a certain ball shaving company offered us a lot of money <laughs> to read an ad. And I was like, no. No. It's just it's one of those things where uh but it's a surreal moment. And you know, you have to you have to be you have to think and you have to have that wherewithal to say, like, look, there's something much bigger at stake here than like mm. the check that you're offering me. So it's one of those things where unfortunately, like, we're gonna have to pass on this. For a lot of people, though, that's a difficult decision to make. You're right. I think that, but honestly, I don't think they will come to that because by definition for all of us to succeed, we have had to do things which are just not capable of operating in that environment. Like, I could not get hired by CNN. I have insulted and gone after almost every single major anchor on that network. Like, it's not possible for me to be congruent with their brand. Yeah. Almost same with Fox. Same with uh, yeah. MSNBC. So... When I, I don't think banks would hire me or Ryan either. Right, exactly. Like you guys are done. And that's a good thing. <laughs> no, that's well. But could you ever thing. work for someone again, yeah. Sager? I mean, probably yeah, not. No, right? I don't think. I don't think so. You're broken. Right? For yeah, that. it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, but it's yeah like, true. Okay, okay. So yeah. we've got a few more things we want to cover with yeah, you, and I, I'm almost tempted, like, because there's a few things we want to ask, is like just to blitz this next section. Be my guess. Can we just yeah. hit politics really quick? Another broken institution, sure. and I'm going to ask the real because like, this is not a politics show. So, but I want to ask the real, maybe the dumb questions that are on top of the mind for me anyway, when I look at politics. Okay. So the first is what about 2024? Okay. Who's going to be running? Who's going to win? Is this a Biden versus Trump thing again? Most likely. Like, do we have to do that again? Most really? likely. Yes. My God. I don't see a current way out of that predicament. There's a couple of ways. Front runners, both the front runners. Yes, I okay. believe like status quo right now, Donald Trump and Joe Biden will be the nominees of their major parties and will be headed up against each other. Wow. Several things could happen. What are the odds that if Joe Biden is elected that he dies in four years? Well, that's actuary uh, tables, well, people uh, doing that. I was going to say, take a look at an actuarial <laughs> table, my friend. Uh, <laughs> like, not good <laughs> for him. Um, look, there are a couple of ways out of this. One is either man dies, possible. They're both eight. They're both like uh, Biden just turned 80. I think believe Trump is 78. So that's very possible. Distinct. Second, Trump is indicted and convicted. Indictment does not preclude conviction. So that's possible. Conviction could be one way to take him out. Although it's not without precedent that you can run for president from prison. So that could set up an interesting. What? <laughs> that would be interesting. interesting legal question. Yeah. 
A socialist candidate did it in like 1920 something. And I if you get elected, they just I forget bring his name, you out. But it is possible. And legally, it's been declared. Self-pardon? Great question. No, they have to come yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know what that would look like. So that's one. You know, he could get indicted. He could get convicted. The third and least likely possibility, in my opinion, is that he's defeated in a GOP primary by another candidate. And I don't see a viable path for any prospective candidate that could make that happen. Not even DeSantis, Florida? Okay. No, I don't think so. I mean, I could give you a long spiel. I've done it many times, but the most basic is this, which is that if you look at preference for the DeSantis hype, the truth is, is that it's almost all college-educated GOP voters who prefer him in an actual head-to-head matchup with Trump. Trump, in terms of the base, has a deeply special relationship. He's the most popular Republican in the party since Ronald Reagan. And his level of support and enthusiasm, specifically amongst the primary base, is so intense. Second, in any world where DeSantis were to run against Trump, there would be several other candidates. So for example, Mike Pence is thinking about running right now, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, several senators, Asa Hutchinson, who's the governor of Arkansas. So by definition, the anti-Trump vote will then get diluted. So the only way that it might work if it was in a head-to-head matchup, but even in head-to-head, I don't personally see it. I could be totally wrong, by the way. I've been wrong a lot, so I don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right. So how about this then? Because this dovetails the next question. If that's the lineup, probability of a civil war, (sighs) all right, of like some actual conflict. Right. Right. Like it was a zero probability for me like five years ago. It's no longer a zero probability event. What do you think about this? Is this a possibility? I, you know, it's funny. I think if the GOP had done much better during the midterms, I actually would have said yes. Not war, but like violence. And the reason why is that would have set us up for like genuine constitutional crises. Like if a uh, Doug Mastriano wins the gubernatorial election in Pennsylvania, like he straight up said he wouldn't certify the election, uh, you know, in 2020. And the governor of Pennsylvania selects the secretary of state. But in all of the major battleground states, not only do the state legislatures stay Democratic or go more Democratic, the secretary of state candidates or the gubernatorial candidates in charge all won their races. So that will set us up for a less high wire scenario that we had in Georgia and Arizona last time around, which set the stage for stop the steal and the lack of election certification at the Capitol level. So I'm less worried about that, Ryan, than you are. Although, look, I mean, anything can happen. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's do a blitz through economic stuff. Great. It kind of feels like the American dream is dead. That old institution so, I mean, two factors, you know, one is inflation, the other is wealth inequality. Let's talk inflation first. Who's to blame for inflation? It's a multifaceted question. Um, if I, well, what type of inflation? Do you mean oh, in the past? A, thank you. Now? Thank you for asking yeah, that yeah. question, right? Yeah. It's like the type of inflation that we talk about on yeah. Bankless is like people mistake, they think inflation is just CPI. Yes. But right. there's also another piece of inflation, which is asset price inflation, Correct. which is like wealth inflation. You have to take both those into account, but few do when they talk about inflation. But yeah, I guess maybe past the last, let's call it 10 to 15 years, and then now kind of current in both forms, asset price inflation and CPI inflation. So asset inflation obviously has to do with Federal Reserve zero interest rate policy over the last like 15 years has just dramatically changed. I think our entire society is not grappled yet with what non-zero interest rate looks like. That's why like we're all teetering on recession. You know, you see all of these major companies 
Walmart and you know Google and all these other cutting or uh, downsizing for the first time, Amazon even downsizing slightly. A lot of that has to do with debt on their balance sheet that has just been zero for a long time that they have to start paying down. You know, it's interesting actually it's having big media plays. Discovery, which is the new controller of CNN, they've got $67 billion in debt that they have to deliver on over the, like a five to 10 year period, which is having them curtail jobs over at CNN actually today in terms of layoffs. So asset price, like I definitely think that's mostly Federal Reserve. The secondary part on CPI, that's a much more multifaceted question. That has to do with demand, pandemic, supply chains. If to be honest, maybe this is unpopular with crypto guys. I think a lot of it is supply chain right now because it's a confluence of demand, both from government printing and spending and people cash in their pockets on top of like unprecedented demand combined with a supply crunch historically, you know, both from the invasion of Ukraine and just general chaos shipping and all of that post pandemic. So it's a tough one. There is no one size fits all answer to that question. I'm glad to hear you say like yeah. central bank and the Fed, because I think the politicians don't often talk about that. And I don't know why. Maybe it's just- They don't get it. Difficult. They don't understand. Do they under- yeah. They're just like, smarter than they than they talk, I think. No? no? You know. <laughs> <All> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Some of them are smart. Good Some, I mean, every once in a while. Uh, you, but I would say you're a replacement level member of Congress. No, not at all. Well, that's yeah. just a very bleak image yeah. of our leadership. It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk crypto real quick. Sure. So- Can you give us the perspective, first of all, on FTX? Like we've been in the bubble. You know, you mentioned the Voorhees and SBF debate, which had a role to play in some of this, of course, but we're very conscious of cryptos looking real bad to outsiders. That's not good. And it doesn't matter how much people like Bankless say, but it was just another bank where we trust with our private keys. This was not peer-to-peer. This was not real crypto. Everyone outside's like, yeah, sure, guys. Uh, another scammer in crypto. What else is new? Mm-hmm. How does this appear on the outside? What's your impression of it? And what do you think the, like, the media's impression of this is? Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> people, like, like, people are not happy. I just did a video about how I lost several thousand dollars on BlockFi. Um, ah, so that I'm happened sorry. to me. I'm sorry. sorry. Uh, no, nah, it's all right. Look, it was greed. Here's the thing. They're paying 9% interest. I should have known. You know, it turns out FDIC exists for a reason, especially whenever it's banks. Let's put that aside. I think, look, it's bad, but there's an opportunity. FTX is not even a story about crypto, to be honest. Like, that is a Theranos-level Enron tale of corruption, of fraud. There's so much to say and think about it. There's the political angle in terms of trying to buy influence and work with the SEC or to try and get regulated and bring his quasi-regulatory framework through humongous amounts of political donations. There's that level. That's a story in its own. There's the media level of, and you know, this is what I think the real blame is, is that the media has not done a good job of explaining like what crypto is. There's crypto, like actual like peer-to-peer money. There is crypto companies like the BlockFi's, the Coinbase's, the Gemini's of the world. We call them crypto banks. Crypto banks, good. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, there's crypto like banks. Then there are like the charlatan, like the crypto influencers. So, you know, for SPF to be granted the quote crypto emperor, you know, in the New York Times and clearly because he not only donated to their best ideology, but like really believed or at least fronted that he believed in it. I don't know. It's a fascinating kind of tale. Mm-hmm. That said, I do think it's an opportunity, you know, from the ashes rise of the phoenix. So 
maybe it's a good opportunity, especially if Gemini goes bust, which I think is probably, you can tell me, doesn't look good for them based on what I've seen right now. I think it's an opportunity to get back to first principles. Mm. So like for me, I got into crypto well before any of the explosion of all of this wealth. I met Balaji Srinivasan in like 2017. No way. Yeah. And so he was somebody who was explaining to me, you know, th- from that, first principles. That's how he talked yes, about Yes, from this. first principles. And also, this was in the age of Bitcoin maximalism, uh, talking about like Bitcoin as like uh, Bitcoin and of crypto as an alternative to the social forces and, you know, the monetary forces that were pushing us in a more centralized. I really vibed with that. And I have not. Something along the way changed to let's all just get fucking rich. 100%. And I think this is a good opportunity. Yeah. Let's get back to that. Because that 100%. was cool, man. That that I was a big believer in that. That's why I got into Bitcoin in the first place. How much of the Breaking Points community is like crypto people? Like how much of our community and your community overlap? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I probably have a much less online audience. Okay. Does that make sense? Right. There are a lot more like, not. I don't mean this in a derogatory way. Like they're normies. <laughs> like they're... Like living their lives, like I'm probably the only news they really consume. They're aware of crypto. They probably heard somebody talk about it uh, in terms of like personal assets invested, probably higher than the general population and atypical for a millennial or Gen Z or Gen X type person who is willing to flirt with it, but generally doesn't know a whole lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Sagar, do you have any advice in terms of how crypto can kind of repair? It sounds like you're saying go back to first principles right yeah Go back to maybe the bankless thesis of like peer-to-peer money yes which is don't store your money in crypto banks and you know verify don't trust that sort of thing is it more than that Can we do a better job communicating our message i mean you said media isn't talking about this well and they're certainly not but like how do we do better on this front probably the toughest element is going to have to be and this is uncomfortable is calling people out mm. when they're doing really really well i mean I think there was a big opportunity to call out SBF and some of these guys and just be like, this guy is a fucking fraud. And I know that's really uncomfortable. Like, I get it. Um, yeah. When Especially when they're on top. It, anyone can say it now. Seven months ago, this kid's a multi-billionaire. You know, like, who am I to say it? But let me tell you, there's currency in saying it. There's currency in challenging it. There's currency in calling out the charlatans. And there's currency in staying true to who you are. And as we have all learned through this time period. Like for me, the only guys in crypto that I'm still really like, like the people who I know who were into it well before anybody was getting rich, well, well before, they're the guys that I'm sticking with, mm. you know, cause we've ridden out the wave and, and most of them were calling out the NFTs and some of the other insanity that was happening and they're still in the game. And so like, again, it's an opportunity right now. Yeah, Like it really is. There's a lot of disaffection and that's okay. You know, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to that Voorhees episode, really, who was like standing for base crypto he was. protocols. And yeah, he's, he he's been in, in it since like 2013, right? He's been here for the right reasons. Dude, yeah. And so I remember reading about it. Yeah, him and, very and different. Like the class of the OG books. The OGs, yeah. the class of Voorhees, class of <laughs> Balaji, the you know, class of even Vitalik. So yeah. Sagar, this has been a pleasure, man. I feel like we could go on another hour, but uh, you're just really fun to talk to. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that, guys. And I think we found like our sibling <laughs> political- in politics yeah. yeah the bankless of politics and breaking points so hey that means a lot it's really cool to talk to you i'm glad we hey, could make this happen shout out to you guys i'm a fan you guys did a fantastic job with that sbf eric Voorhees thing i i'm going to try and get you guys more credit for that because i think you really deserve it you built like a genuine space and a, 
a platform where no bullshit and the area completely full of bullshit and you deserve a lot of applause for that. So I wish you guys nothing but success. Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate you. you. And some action items for the bankless community today. Number one, you got to go subscribe to Breaking Point Podcast on YouTube and in RSS. This is my wife's favorite podcast above Bankless, by oh, the way. Shout out, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. shout out to your wife. Shout out to your wife, I also enjoy it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, Sagar hosts another podcast we'll include a link to. It's called The Realignment Podcast. There was a book mentioned. Anytime a book gets mentioned, as is tradition, we include it in the show notes. It's called Snowball. Go check that out if you're interested. And of course, got to end with this. Risks and disclaimers. We always let you know at this point in the show that none of this has been financial advice. Crypto is risky. DeFi is risky. So is ETH and Bitcoin. You could lose what you put in. We are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.